All right, let's go James chapter 4. James chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, we would invite you to take that physical one home. Uh, the reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but uh, the, the biggest of all the important things, the most important and the, the most beautiful of all the important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. It's the, our, our God speaks, and he speaks through the scriptures, and, and, and to know him is to, to know him through how he has revealed himself. And so um, if you don't have a copy of God's word that you get to call yours, take, take, that, take ours, just steal it. It's, it's, it's better if you're reading it at home than it's just stuck here under, under a seat, right? And so um, we believe that God will use it in incredibly important ways. Uh, James chapter 4. Uh, so we are marching along... Uh, through our effort to kind of study uh, the book of James together. We've made it now to week 15. Like, did you think that there were 15 weeks in James? Because there's a lot more. Uh, it's coming. All right, um, no, we, we've been working on this since mid-January, uh, and we're, we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel, I think. Um, we're going to, we, we won't, we're introducing the fourth of five chapters this morning. Um, so if you're coming into this late, if like this is like your first time here, maybe first couple of times here, uh, what, what is James? All right, What is the book of James? Like why, why should you care anything about it? Well, James is a general letter uh, written to all Christians that have been scattered out uh, from the city of Jerusalem into a bunch of other places uh, in the early to mid 40s AD. All right. All right. Um, and so if you've got one of those fancy Bibles, with maps in the back. Like, I've got a couple of those in my office. This one, I don't know if it has any. Ooh, look, it's got maps in the back. All right. All right. So, if you got one of those fancy Bibles with maps in the back, uh, you can kind of look at it from there. The, we're talking about the Roman regions of northern Judea, Syria, Cilicia, and Cappadocia, which would be modern-day Syria and then the eastern and southeastern parts of Turkey. All right? So if you're really interested in the geography side of things, people have scattered from Jerusalem north of there into all of these new regions. All right? But while the audience of the letter is very, very broad, the purpose of the letter is very, very specific. All right? James has a very specific intent. James is writing to an audience that has a lot of confusion about what it means to actually be a Christian. What are the things that Christians do? How are they identified? What is it that they, they wrap their lives around? A handful of years before this letter, uh, the first real wave of persecution uh, kind of struck the early church. Uh, a guy named Saul in the, in the book of Acts chapter 8, we're told, uh, is breathing threats and persecution and everybody darts. All right, they all bolt out of the city of Jerusalem. A, a handful of years before this letter, the, um, you just kind of had Jewish background believers all huddled up in the city of Jerusalem. God was doing some good things, and a lot of people were coming to know Jesus, and there's a lot of awesome stuff that we can point to, uh, but they were just kind of there. And we're told that, that because of what Saul does, that everybody runs off. And it sounds like a terrible story, but it ends up being an incredibly good thing because God uses that first wave of persecution to get the church to do what he had been telling them the whole time that they were supposed to be doing, making disciples of all nations, right? The persecution dies down. In fact, the guy instigating it becomes a Christian himself, so yay, right? But the end result is that Jewish background believers scatter into all these very not Jewish background places. They end up in very Gentile heavy places. Now the church has got to figure out exactly what that means because well, the, the church isn't just Jewish anymore. 
Gentiles are hearing the gospel, they're believing the gospel, new churches are being built up. Okay, but what, is that, what does that actually look like? The Jews had a long, very, very long list of customs and commands that marked them out as a distinct people from all of their neighbors. Commands that clearly identified uh, who the priests are and defined how they would represent the nation and how sacrifices would be made. Commands for how the nation state of Israel would not only create its laws but apply its laws, right? But now Jesus had come and fulfilled a lot of that stuff. The things specifically given to Israel to, to point to a coming Messiah, they, they, had, they had met their true form. We no longer need the shadow anymore. On top of that, while Israel was seen as the people of God in the Old Covenant, and yeah, there was a small handful of non-Israelites that were grafted into the story, all uh, pointing to a day to come, but all of those non-Israelites grafted in, they had to do all the Jewish stuff. That's how they were grafted in. Jesus has flung the door wide open for other cultures to be a a part of His eternal kingdom. So how exactly, like rubber meets the road, how exactly should those non-Jewish folks coming into the church look at and think of all the Jewish customs and laws? Were the dietary commands still in place? Was circumcision still something that God's people were supposed to do in order to mark them out as God's people. Exactly how Jewish was this new Christian faith? And while that massive question eventually gets an equally massive answer, it doesn't come until an event that we call the Jerusalem Council a few years after when we believe this letter was written. And so to James and to James's audience, it's still an incredibly active public debate. And in this letter, James wades into that debate. His answer is that while salvation can never be earned by works, an authentic faith that actually saves people, that has any ability at all to save people, is never by itself. It's never alone. True faith always has faith-filled works tagging along behind it. And if it doesn't, well, then there's sufficient reason to doubt the faith claims that someone is making. Even the demons believe correct things about God, James says. Why? Because accurate doctrine cannot save someone. But right belief in the context of a reconciled relationship with Jesus will naturally lead to right action. You produce the fruit of what you naturally are. So over the last few weeks, James has been digging deeper and deeper into some categorical uh, changes that he ripped off at the, uh, earlier in the letter. Uh, he argued back in chapter 1 that uh, there are a few major limbs uh, that, that all of the faith-produced life change branches seem to connect to. They all kind of flow out of uh, some major categories. And those three things are how we treat other people, how we control our tongue, and then how we view our own sin and the threat that it bears on what we are, are supposed to value. All right, those are his three categories. And over the last couple of installments, James has begun to, to come back to these major categories in order to flesh them out in what I think is much deeper detail. Uh, and it's that third category that he wants to get into today, how we view our sin. How we view our sin, which means uh, we're throwing bombs today. You ready? Verse 1. James 4, verse 1. 
What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Let's call time out there. So James asks another rhetorical question, right? He seems to be doing that more and more often in this letter. He likes to set little traps, uh, and there's an obvious answer to this question. If we're smart, we'll wait for James to answer it for us, right? That's how that works. Keep your mouth shut. Just wait for James to get finished, right? And this is a moment where the chapter breaks in our modern Bibles, creates just a slight bit of, of, of a problem. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, don't have a lot of experience uh, reading it, the chapter and verse markings came way later than the original writings, like a millennia plus, millennia and a half later than the original uh, writings. Um, they're not original to the text. They were added simply as reference points uh, much later to help people find stuff. Like, think about it. It's much easier to find John 3.16 than it is to find that place where Jesus said that thing about why he came, right? Like, those are very different tasks in front of you, right? And so chapter references showed up in the 13th century. Verse references showed up in the 16th century. So, so why would anybody need to know that? Why is that important? Well, because it reminds us not to treat sections of the Bible as silos, right? We have to be very, very careful not to fall into the rut of believing and thinking that everything is disconnected from the stuff around it. And that's exactly what's in danger here. There's a flow of thought here that gets lost if you see chapters 3 and 4 as completely different things. James closes out chapter 3 by arguing that that those who pursue meekness through heavenly wisdom produce a long list of other wonderful character traits that show off the character of God and make the world a better place. He argues that we become peacemakers with a harvest of righteousness to our credit. Look at the trail of the good things we've left. But um, how did you do this week? Pursuing meekness. Did it come natural to you? Did you walk out the door here last Sunday and go, man, this week's going to be different? And then just everything sailed along in perfect meekness, heavenly wisdom from above. Or did you walk out the door last week and find this a lot harder than you hoped? Immediately forget meekness's value and beauty. Did you just spend the, this last week chasing the exact same stuff that you chased the week before? Definitely the only guy who did that. See, when presented with the truth, we all, we all see the ideal. We all see the, the obvious beauty of it, but the flesh is weak, right? Like, it's harder than we like to pretend that it is. And in verse 1, James points to why that weakness is there. He points to why that weakness is there. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Well, it's quite simple, actually. You are at war within yourself. And welcome to yet another episode of James and Paul are saying the exact same thing. In Romans 7, 21, the Apostle Paul says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
Paul sees a battle within himself over the deepest desires of his heart. He knows what's good. He knows what's right. He's confident in it even. Uh, and he, and he, he knows what's going to bring him the most satisfaction. He knows what's going to bring him the deepest possible life. He knows what's going to be pleasing to God. But the struggle is deeply buried in him too. Right? They're, they're both there. And so he asks a rhetorical question of his own. He says, who will rescue me out of this? And the obvious answer, he gives it, Jesus will. Jesus will rescue him out of that. He desperately needs Jesus to change his heart. But I thought Paul was already saved. Yeah, he was. And he still needs Jesus to rescue him. James is going to answer that same question, that same rhetorical question in a very, very similar way here in a minute. But he's not there yet. Why do you quarrel? Why do you fight? And he seems to be speaking about kind of the specific context of a local church here. He's writing to Christians in this letter, not, not unsaved people. So what caused quarrels and fights among you? Well, it's the reality that you've got sinful things buried down deep inside of you that Jesus hasn't changed yet. He will. Make no mistake, oh, he will. He's promised to continue making you more and more and more and more like himself. In fact, he's even got plans to root out a bunch of sinful stuff in you that you don't even understand is sin yet. He's aiming for it, and it's on the target. But your practical righteousness, it does not yet match your declared status of righteousness in Christ. And this disconnect, it creates all kinds of problems for you, right? If you're paying attention at all, you could see them all over the place. Problems that would be really, really, really nice to avoid, right? And James fleshes out some of those problems starting in verse 2. He says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So you desire and you do not have, so you murder. Uh, I'm just pretty sure that James is probably using hyperbole there. I'm just saying. Um, and I know it's a limb, but I'm going to go ahead and assume that uh, there's not a whole lot of murder going on in the churches that James is writing to. And I know it's a stretch, but there's probably not a whole lot of murder going on in our church either, right? Uh, unless you know something I don't know, and then we got to talk, all right? Um, but at the same time, Based on some things that Jesus said once, murder's not that far a step away from the common things we do see happening in our midst. It's not, it's not like it's this big, bold step away from the norm. Remember that James has leaned pretty heavily throughout this letter so far on the Sermon on the Mount. He keeps repeating Jesus' language back to his audience. And Jesus taught that murder and hatred are nothing more than the different fleshings out of the same internal sin. Same root. Hatred in your heart may have more restraint and subtlety buried in it than murder does, obviously so, but they're coming out of the exact same sinful place inside of you, Jesus argues. And so in the same way that James argued that bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in chapter 3 naturally lead to disorder and vile practice, left unchecked, anger and hatred will bear a natural fruit as well, and it's not pretty. It has a logical end, just like jealousy and selfish ambition does. And that end is not nearly as big a step as we wish it were. 
We like to pretend that it is. After that, James says that you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight over it. In other words, if you can't have it, you're going to make darn sure that no one else can have it either. And I know how petty that sounds, but this is how quickly we devolve into pettiness, isn't it? The sinful bent inside of us slips into pettiness that easily. We could all sit back and laugh at it if we didn't have a long list of petty moments we'd rather not let other people know about, right? And then James, he says something that has caused a lot of confusion over the years. In fact, it's, uh, it's the first of uh, two verses in our text this morning that, uh, that frequently get harangued by people with an agenda. Um, James says, you do not have because you do not what? Ask. And you don't have to work too hard to, to pinpoint which group like wants to pick that up and run to the end zone with it. All right. um, buried in the middle of a letter uh, that is all about living righteously in a way that's consistent with the righteous identity we claim in Christ. And in the, right in the very middle of a text where James is specifically attacking the latent sinful tendencies in us, the prosperity gospel folks carve out a third of a verse to argue that we ought to feel entitled to ask God for more stuff. That's bold. That's real bold. Like, if, if you give them credit for nothing else, that's brave, all right? So what is, what is James talking about? Why should we not let the prosperity gospel tribe have that third of a verse? Well, there's a reason why I read verse 3 with it, all right? There's a reason why those two things are right next to each other. It says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions, the problem is not in the asking or the not asking. The problem is who are you trying to exalt? Who are you trying to build up and make much of? James's entire argument in this paragraph is that the old sinful passions still buried inside of you pull you away from things that honor God and things that are ultimately good for you and for God's kingdom. So why would God give you those things? Why would he let you have them if that's what it's going to do? If my kids ask for something that's going to harm them, I'm usually going to tell them no. There are sometimes I tell them yes, though. It's because I want to watch them learn that lesson. Right? Oh, don't act like you're a better parent than me. <laughs> James asserts here that instead of thanking God for the withholding of what we don't understand. Um, what we don't understand is ridiculous. What we don't understand is bad or harmful for us. We instead, we double down in our pettiness. We get mad at God and take it out on everybody else. So the illustration of kids here still holds up. It's childish. We are ignorant and naive in our outrage, and all the spiritually mature people in the room watching it play out are going, oh, no. All right? Now, sometimes, sometimes the, the mature wait for the dust to settle, and then they step in with gentleness. Oftentimes, that is the exact appropriate response to watching somebody uh, rage in their immaturity. But sometimes... Sometimes the mature need to step in with forceful truth, right? You ever been in a situation like that? Hey, guess which one James is going to use here? 
Yeah, here we go. Verse 4. You adulterous people. That's fun. We're putting this one in the category of gentle correction, right? Now, for the umpteenth time in this letter, James has intentionally woven in an Old Testament vocabulary. Adulterous people uh, was a persistent title levied at, uh, upon Israel and then upon Judah after her uh, all throughout their stories. And God means by it exactly what you and I assume he means by it. That God's people ignore the covenant that God made specifically with them. That they ignore every single thing that God has done for them over and over and over again to carry them along and rescue them out of bondage and all the good things he's made himself known. And they run instead to other lovers. We embrace and find comfort and satisfaction in the arms of something other than God himself. And this is a biblical reality of sin that that most people, in my experience, either completely ignore or just lazily never bothered to think through on a, in a careful manner. In the Bible, sin is not simply a mistake. It's not a minor slip-up on a pathway to your personal journey of being better. Sin is described in the Bible as a posture of rejection that leads to both actions and inactions, proving that rejection is buried deep. And the Bible tends to describe sin in two kind of major illustrative ways. The first one is used more often in the New Testament. We tend to use that language here more frequently. Uh, but the Bible often describes uh, sin in the language of usurpation. Usurpation. Uh, we reject God's claims of lordship over us by asserting ourselves as Lord and King. How dare he try to dictate what, what I think and chase after? How dare he try to dictate what I make of myself? Depose him and become the master of my own fate. But while usurpation language, while it exists in the Old Testament, much more often... Much more often, the Old Testament tends to use the language of a broken marriage relationship when it talks about sin. We're not satisfied with our husband, so we go reject him and we run to the embrace of idols. If you've never read it before, this is literally the story of Hosea, the prophet. This is the game. God, God has a man marry a prostitute who keeps running off to have illegitimate children in order to illustrate how his people treat him. What a story, right? It's a painful story for sure. But it's also a story that ends with the unfathomable beauty of God causing Hosea to love her anyways and to redeem her out of her sin. Rescue her out of her bondage. James picks up that adultery language here in verse 4. And he doesn't do it to be cute. He doesn't do it to just call their attention back to some things they remember reading once before. He's setting the tone here, so let's keep reading. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Welcome to the second verse today that gets harangued by people with an agenda. Um, so what exactly does, 
What does exactly James mean by friendship with the world? Well, there are some. There are some who have argued that it means any posture other than a complete antagonism towards the world. Meaning you're either against the world or you're a friend of it. There's no middle ground. You're either on God's side of things or you're on the world's side of things. You probably see this posture every day on Facebook. Well, there's a long list of problems buried in that logic. First and foremost, it takes a massive amount of blind self-righteousness to believe that you're getting it 100% correct without even a single point of failure. Well, that's true. To be quite honest, though, those kind of arguments sound more and more plausible when the world postures itself with its own with us or against us arguments. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we seem to be finding ourselves more and more often being forced into unfair corners that we didn't even create. Especially during things like Pride Month. But we need to be careful here with James. Not, not because the world around us isn't forcing people to pick a side. That, that is true. Make no mistake. You will eventually be forced to pick a side. Publicly. Now we need to be careful because James uses language of covenantal relationship on purpose. This letter is to Christians, not to, not to non-Christians. It's like, what's clicking around me? <laughs> cool, all right. I don't know what that means. All right, so... No, we need to be careful here because James uses the language of covenantal relationship on purpose. This, this letter is written to Christians, right? And so his point, all right, his point is that the bent exists in every single one of us that, uh, to cling to a deceptive wisdom that promises fulfillment, that promises joy, that promises satisfaction rather than the God who loves us and truly satisfies us. And in our immaturity and in the remnants of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition still buried deeply inside of us, we are highly susceptible to the adulterous act of clinging to other lovers. That's his point. Rather than pointing to James 4.4 and beating our chest as those who, uh, who stand on the side of God, James would have us read verse 4 and lament just how insanely easy it is for us to love the world more than we love the God who saved us and joyfully called us his own. Do we see what we're doing? But grace be to God, man, that is he's right, the right kind of jealous. It is a righteous kind of jealous. It is good news that he fights for our hearts instead of sitting there and letting us run off into what will harm us. Our God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Meaning he will not, will not let his people be the opposite of what he calls them to be. In his righteous jealousy, he makes the call clear. Repent. Repent. Turn away from your adultery. Turn away. Turn to the one who loves you better than false lovers could ever even promise, let alone fulfill. Trade the deceptive counter wisdom of this world for a meek wisdom that comes from him. But remember, James, James is carried this chief concern all the way through this letter for God's people 
practically acting out the internal postures that God is changing in them, right? Like he's, he's, he, he doesn't want uh, nice words. He wants actions that prove the internal reality, right? And so that's where verse 7 comes into play. Look at verse 7. It says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Verse 10, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. So if outward actions are supposed to be the fleshing out of true internal realities, James says that it's time to start acting in ways that are consistent with the posture of repentance. That's what he says. Don't simply bemoan the sin of the world or even the sin in yourself. No, uh, actually submit yourself to God. In other words, do the things he said to do. Resist the devil, he says. Draw near to God. Those actions are not just pretty metaphorical sounding things. No, they are effectual good things. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. You're double-minded, so do the work of purifying your heart. Listen, we all get that it's possible to have a veneer of righteousness, a pharisaic-looking set of actions void of the heart, right? That, that false posture, it's a posture that exists solely to try to make people think highly of you and you don't really care what God thinks. It deserves to be rebuked every time it pops its ugly little head up above the water. Absolutely so. But the opposite posture is just as sinful. A posture that claims a pursuit of righteousness but is too weak need to follow through with it in any kind of outward way, it deserves exactly the same amount of rebuke. James says, hey now, don't simply claim repentance. No, do the actions consistent with repentance. Do those actions look differently in our culture than the ones James is writing to? Yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but sackcloth and ashes doesn't tend to carry the same cultural messaging as it did a few thousand years ago. All right? Probably need to come up with our own versions of this. But repentance is never simply an inward reality. It must, it must raise effectual change on the surface. There will be an outside proof of the inside reality. And then in verse 9, James says something that's well, pretty much the exact opposite of verses that we like to you know, put up on a pedestal and celebrate in the Bible. Um, he says that until we get this handled in our own hearts, it would be good and right for us to shut down the laughter and to shut down the joyful celebrations. It would be better to posture ourselves with mourning and gloom. Hey, who's ready to go to church today? Man, I'm so ready to focus on physically mourning my sin. I was just looking forward to it. You know, I've been waiting all week long to find a proper outlet for the gloom over chasing idols in my heart. Was that not your experience getting ready for church this morning? If you're not a Christian yet and you're wondering if this is what God's people are supposed to be like all the time, the answer is no. No, it's not. Um, in this part of the world, the Puritans are a group that often get a bad rap uh, because they wrote about these realities far more forcefully than all their contemporaries. Um, but that's 
far from everything they wrote. It's not even, it's not even barely a blip on the radar of all the things that they wrote. It's just they're surrounded by a bunch of people who didn't think that this was important, so they look like the bad guys. The answer is no. Christians are not always supposed to be like this. But man, sometimes we ought to be. Do you feel that? Sometimes we ought to be. There needs to be seasons in your life where sin is seen for exactly what it is. There needs to be moments that you can point to where laughter and merriment feel like they're in the way of something that's important. And Christian, if there's never a season in your life when, there are, when these, these are the postures that you naturally feel or deserved by your sin, well, then the truth is, is that you don't see your sin the way Jesus sees your sin. Something to be repented of and rejected is less lovely than him and what he's done for you. Yes, mourning always eventually comes to an end. An inability to move past mourning is a problem, but a lack of mourning means that you don't properly understand the significance of the loss. You're unaware of just what it has cost you. And in humbling ourselves before God, Jesus promises that God will exalt us. He will lift us up out of that mourning and out of that righteous gloom and into his infinitely sweeter joy. A joy that has right now benefits. Jesus is going to continue making you look more and more and more and more like himself, but also is a joy that has far more eternal, come quickly, Lord Jesus, kind of benefits. You can't wait for the day when he will finally deliver you from this body of death. What do we do with this? How can we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus, our response is the standard one, right? We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And, and this week, the response probably needs to take the shape of an authentic searching of our hearts. Where are you tempted to chase after lesser lovers? Or is that something that's a little too easy for you? Where is the sin-bentness of your heart inclined to befriend the world instead of God? And what specific actions will help you flesh out an authentic repentance? I can't answer those questions for you, but hey, JB's back, so you get proper three verses in a bridge today. It's great. You got plenty of time. In a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. If you, if you want to talk about it after we're done, let's, let's talk, man. I'm here. I'm here. Or maybe you're a Christian who needs to respond in some other kind of way this morning. Maybe God's calling you to formally join our church family. Let's talk about that. Let's go. Or maybe it's time to finally be obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized. We can talk about that too. Or maybe it's time for you to publicly say yes to some calling that God has placed on your heart to, uh, to take the gospel to somewhere that doesn't know him very well yet or doesn't know him at all yet. Man, I'd love to help you think through next steps for that. But what if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? Can you respond to God's word? The answer is absolutely yes. You do that by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that all people everywhere by default are separated relationally from God because of our sin. And in that separation, we are owed the just and righteous punishment for sin. The Bible calls it hell. The question becomes, do you see that as a problem for you this morning? Because if you do, the Bible also seems to teach that it's, that it's time to do something about that. 
take the next step. The eternal Son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that I can't live and you can't live and none of us can live. And he, did, uh, he died on a, on a cross, a Roman cross, uh, as an innocent substitute to make full and final payment for your sin, to bridge the gap between God and man and reconcile you to himself. And he was raised again as a, as a vindication of his own perfect and sufficient righteousness. So what do we do with that news? We repent of our sin and we call on him in faith to save us. That's what we do. Or we can say it like James did. We humble ourselves before him and he will exalt us. You can do that this morning. And I'd love to be helpful to you. Let's talk. But whoever you are, whatever God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the book of James. Thank you for weighty words that call us to eternally true things. I can point to too many moments in my life where either a timidness on my part or an arrogant, I know better attitude or fill in the blank have caused me to be a friend of the world rather than a friend of God. It's all too easy for me. Who will deliver me from this body of death? We know the answer. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Continue to change us. Continue to mold us into into looking more and more like you. The flesh is weak. But you are good and you are strong and you are mighty to save. Call us to repentance over good things this this week. But not just an internal reality. Make it bear fruit outside of us as well. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you call them to yourself this morning? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear? Call people into your kingdom today. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond.